presentation uh, kicked in here? Okay, great. Thanks. Um, you know, the, the gospel is, is the message that God has reached out to us and accepted us and welcomed us regardless of our shortcomings. And um, it's summarized in a nutshell, nutshell in, in Matthew 22, in a passage that we talk about frequently, where someone comes to Jesus and says, you know, what's it all about? And he says, well, all of the law and the prophets come down to this, that you love God with all your heart and, and you love your neighbor as yourself. He sort of talks about the first commandment in the Old Testament. And then there, there are the six most powerful words in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned. You know, he talks about the first commandment and then he says, and the second is like it. And, and then goes on to say, and, you know, it's about loving your neighbor as yourself. And what we, we struggle to do, what we try to do, I think, all of our lives as Christians is to understand our neighbor and to reach out to our neighbor. And that's one of the reasons why I produce the weekly review that you'll find over there, which I've been producing now, which contains seven stories of major issues of injustice from the previous week's news. And um, that's been running for two years now. So the first hundred of those seven collections of seven stories, so in other words, 700 stories, is compiled in my book, um, which you can either have free online or you can give me 16 quid if you want to pay for the photocopy. Um, and this is something that has been close to my heart for the last um, 40 years. Um, you won't be able to see it because it's too faded, really, but um, in the front of this sort of sepia-colored um, brown document thing is a newspaper clipping photograph of a Vietnamese villager um, totally distraught, bereft, lying, sitting on the remains of his home, um, which has just been bombed um, by an American B-52 in 1973. Um, and his family are gone, his home is gone, his life is gone, and his, pic his face is a picture of utter dejection. Uh, if you want to see the photograph, you're by all means welcome to come and look at it afterwards. It doesn't really scan properly. Um, and the document that I'm holding is something I wrote in 1976, 40 years ago. Um, I was studying economics in France. I can't do anything straightforwardly, I'm afraid. Um, so there's 70 pages here, on, which is an inquiry into the reasons why the majority world is poor, except it's in French. Sorry about that. So really, for, for much of my life, I've been um, trying to make sense of the reality of the fact that we live in a world which is ill-divided, as George Galloway once said when he was leading a, an, a fantastic documentary series in 1984 called The Politics of Food, looking at why it is that the world's uh, resources are ill-divided. And I think in the Christian world, we are quite good at charity. We are quite good at running food banks. We are quite good at reaching out to our neighbor in intensely practical ways. What we're sometimes less good at is understanding systems understanding a bit of economics and politics, understanding the structural mechanisms which determine poverty, because they're not random, they're deliberate. So this passage that we're looking at um, is potentially the most challenging passage, I think, in the entire New Testament, because it's, it sets standards which none of us really conform to. We, we all... 
we aspire to be generous and open-hearted. And, you know, there's that wonderful prophecy in Ezekiel 36 about, I will take out of you the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my laws within you and I'll motivate you to walk in my ways and I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a lovely, a lovely you know, picture. But we're all suboptimal, as the economists would say. We're all less than our best. We're all imperfect. Excuse me. And this passage sets a wonderful sort of practical standard. And then the people that Jesus, you know, is talking to, well, hang on a minute, you know, when did we see, you know, Jesus is saying, well, I was hungry and I, and, and they're saying, what? Don't compute. You know, when did we see you? And Jesus says, you know, he, he establishes a link with fellow human beings of any age or stage, of any race or tribe, you know, the Dalits, the untouchables of India, for example, and, and basically says, you know, I identify with your raw human need, hunger, thirst, social isolation. Some of you in the course of what you do for a living might have come across a, a, a triangle diagram called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And what it tries to do is stratify you know, so human needs. So if you're being shot at on a Syrian hillside, um, you're not worried about education. You know, you're, you're, we're talking about the most basic elements of survival, and there are great swathes of the world's population struggling to survive now in a way which is, is more apparent for us to see than has ever been the case because of the availability of all sorts of media. Um, Jesus says, you know, when you see that person, that's me. And, and coming back to the earlier passage about love God, love your neighbor, you know, the boundaries. We sang that lovely song by Dan over the back. Respect, Dan, great song. Um, um, you know, breaking down the boundaries. Jesus breaks down the boundaries between himself and, and human beings made in his image. And, and insofar as human beings, basic needs are not met insofar as they are subject to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, um, to quote the bard. Um, Jesus it relates to them and identifies with them, and he challenges his hearers, you know, would, would, you, would you not do for your fellow human being what, what you might do for me? And this has to do with not just immediate charity, it has to do with understanding the mechanisms um, which are fundamentally economic and political, which shape the way in which our world is ill-divided. Because if we don't understand, even at a simple level, and I'm not talking about great academic complexity, you know, even at GCSE kind of level, if we don't understand um, some of what's going on in the world around us, then we are naive. And we're called upon to be innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. <laughs> I don't want to push the serpent a bit too far, you know, but you get the drift, yeah? So, you know, don't tell me that you love me and then ignore the plight of vulnerable people struggling to survive physically, socially, and emotionally. So the point of my talk this morning, really, is to try to equip us and to give us some tools and some resources with which to make sense of a complicated world. Now, there's a limit to what I can do in the course of um, the 15 minutes that remain, and I don't propose to drown you with detail. Um, but if these are the sorts of things that you might be interested in exploring further, then, 
You're very welcome to have what is a social diary of key news stories for the last two years, which unpack all these sorts of things, or just sign up for the thing that I've written over there. There are hard copies there, but if you sign up, then you save on printer ink, which has to be good for the world. Um, as 1 John 4.20 says, how can we talk about loving God whom we have not seen if we do not love our neighbor who we have seen? So my, my point this morning is to try to give us some encouragement and some resource and, and some provocative thought and also some awareness of reality, some reality of the world that we live in. And, and the Isaiah passage talks about chains of injustice. There are structural mechanisms. For example, um, if you work in a profit-maximizing business, profit is the difference between revenue minus costs. Revenue is the money that firms bring in. They try to push it as high as possible. Um, the gap, profit is the gap between their revenue up here and their costs down there. So they have an inbuilt incentive to minimize their costs by paying their wages as little as possible. Lord Wilson, who's a Tory party donor who happens to be the chief executive of Next, took home 4.6 million last year and yet said at the company's annual general meeting recently, I can't talk about the living wage, don't expect me to pay the living wage. Next doesn't exist in order to support the, the aims and objectives of the Living Wage Foundation. Two laws of the jungle. And Micah, that Micah passage, you know, he has shown you a man, a woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness. Last week I was talking about kindness at our away day and we were talking about pastoral care and we want to provide a range of support facilities to build on all of the excellent work that's been going on in this church for many years in terms of meeting people's needs. Kindness. I said to Nita, what do you think is the most important thing in life? She said, Kindness. And, and that kindness that we aspire to have in our church life with one another needs to translate also into kindness with our neighbor, which is where the act justly bit comes in. And for me, justice is about ensuring that every human being has access to the rights that I believe that they're given when they're made in God's image, are planted on God's good earth and given a number of years to live. You know, why should people live out a life, eke out a life in, in poverty and squalor when others, you know, pour the champagne away at parties after 10 minutes because it's got warm. You may remember the film Wall Street with that famous speech by Gordon Gekko, you know, greed is good. There was another famous quote in that speech as well, where the young tycoon confronts the, uh, or the young broker confronts the tycoon. How much is enough? How much is enough? That's the question that capitalism can't answer because the nature of human greed means I constantly have to have more and better. I promise not to pour the water into the piano. I'm told it's not good for it. So my point is that when we look at the quality of life of our fellow men, women, and children, we see many living in conditions of acute poverty and deprivation. We owe it to them, to God, to ourselves, and to one another to understand their circumstances and to improve their quality of life as far as we can, where we are, with the talents, efforts, and imagination that we possess if we are to see God in others. So that's my point. That's the reason for this talk this morning. And what I hope you may be able to take away with you is some thoughts which will inspire you to do something specific over the next week, over the next six months perhaps, and over the next five years. I could talk to you uh, about many, many chains of injustice, and I've just selected a few this morning, um, which you will see there, such as climate change, which runs the risk of killing all of us. 
um, such as obviously poverty worldwide, such as warmongering. And I want to give you some uh, quotes from children living in Gaza. Um, as far as the UK goes, I think politics over the last five, six years has seen the intentional impoverishment of the poor and the very intentional enrichment of the rich. And I want to give you some examples of how that is actually working out. Austerity, in the words of Heather Stewart, who's the economics editor of The Observer, is a political choice. You know, economics looks at the mechanisms by which, for example, if we want to have a welfare state, either we bring tax resources in or we stop spending. That's all economics is all about. It's a lifeless mechanical study. Political economy, on the other hand, is about the choices that people make to say, no, we will spend money on a health service, not on arms. We will, spend, we will actually increase taxes on the rich instead of cutting them. And we will increase benefit payments to disabled people instead of cutting them. Instead, what's happened? The, the, I mean, the, the record is just incontrovertible. It's completely and obviously clear that policy over the last five, six years has enriched the rich at the expense of the most vulnerable members of our society. So just to look at climate change, for example, I don't propose to read through all of these, but there's some thoughts for you. But basically, we subsidize fossil fuel industries um, to the tune of £435 per person per year. You know, we, we talk sometimes about subsidizing wind and solar and all of that. In fact, we've been subsidizing fossil fuel for a very long time. Rex Tillerson, the last point, he's the chief executive of ExxonMobil, which is the world's largest oil company. He said last week at the company's annual general meeting, you know, the world is not, it's just going to have to continue using fossil fuels, whether they like it or not. Well, thanks, Rex. Nice of you to tell us. Rex, the president of the world, you know. Um, just saying turn off the taps is not acceptable to humanity. Well, who is he to say what's acceptable to humanity? It's for humanity to decide what kind of world we live in. But as long as you've got big oil companies lobbying parliament and lobbying governments to get massive subsidies, 25 times the subsidies given to wind and solar, it's going to be tricky, isn't it? Global humanitarian need. Again, I don't expect you to read all of that, but there's a massive food crisis going on in Africa at the moment, which is there's a time bomb ticking away and 50 million people are at danger of starvation because the, the massive drought means that harvests have, have been decimated this year. Um, and yet, uh, as the um, uh, UN High Commissioner for Refugees points out, and after all, refugees are refugees because they're fleeing poverty and starvation, not just because they're fleeing war. Um, if you look at those displaced per, by conflict per day, in 2010 it was 11,000 per day. Last year it was 42,000. The global humanitarian community is not broken. As a whole, they're more effective than ever before, but we're broke. You know, the Disasters Emergency Committee struggles now to meet disaster after disaster after disaster because of so-called compassion fatigue. But actually, compassion is a muscle in our brain. The more you use it, the more it grows and develops. You know, if we never go out, just as Steve was saying, if we never take care of our bodies, then we're not exactly going to be able to run a marathon. And yet, with compassion, if we actually exercise it and get involved with the needs of the most vulnerable of our world, we extend our capacity. Warmongering. If you look at today's newspaper, you'll find that we have broken all the limits for arms sales to um, uh, Saudi Arabia which has been dropping cluster bombs, which are illegal under international humanitarian law, in Yemen. Britain, British Aerospace is, is the world's second largest arms exporter as a company. 
the Alyumama arms deal, which has gone on since 1995 now, means that we are flooding some of the most despotic regimes in the world with arms and with weapons which are in fact illegal under international law. And yet we say, problem? What problem? The, the parliamentary committee set out to examine all of these arms sales uh, hasn't met for a year. <laughs> What's that all about? I love that quote from the last point there. Right, Reverend Bishop David Walker, uh, Bishop of Manchester, the moral cost of our continual overseas interventions like Iraq and Afghanistan. The occupying forces in Iraq couldn't, couldn't be bothered to keep a tally of the numbers of people killed, so it's fallen to an NGO called the Iraq Body Count to track the numbers of people killed in Iraq. Since 2003, it's thought to be um, 170,000 civilians. In total, including uh, military forces, 240,000. Now, I don't know exactly how many people died under Saddam Hussein, but I think it was rather less than that. The moral cost of our continual overseas interventions has to include accepting a fair share of the victims of the wars to which we have contributed. I want my country to be governed by those who are willing to look into the faces of the desperate with compassion. Only such politicians will I trust with the well-being of my family, my community, and my nation. That's a powerful quote, I think. Some quotes uh, put together, some interviews by Lise Doucet of BBC Two uh, from children in Gaza. The voices of children. Nobody can tell us not to be scared. I can deal with it. I have nightmares. This is the situation. You could be a doctor and help make your mum well. I want to be a journalist and tell people what happens in wars. Every baby will get used to it. Who says scars heal? There's no safety in the world, nowhere. They even shell us inside school. We were sleeping when the rockets hit our school. The building fell on us. For every Israeli killed in the Intifada, 30 Palestinians were killed. Just looking at the last um, budget, for example, um, the, here is a list of the, the benefits that were taken away from some of the most vulnerable people in our society, such as disabled people, for example. Again, I won't bore you with the details. Um, but if you look at the last bullet from two, last but two, Joseph Rowntree Foundation. You know, Joseph Rowntree was a, a wealthy capitalist uh, making uh, chocolate in Leeds. In, is it Leeds? York. Um, set up a foundation to, con to continue studying poverty and said, 70 years on from beverage, we, ri we risk entering a decade of destitution. The last point that Steve has mentioned before on a Sunday morning, cold kills more people than road accidents, drugs or alcohol. 117,000 people have died here in Britain over the last four years due to cold. Now, you know, I'm sorry this isn't a kind of an all-singing, dancing, encouraging, upbeat, cheerful presentation this morning. I don't want to depress you to death, but I will leave you in a minute with some um, inspiring people who, against all the odds, have made a dramatic difference to the world that they live in. I could likewise go through the enrichment of the corporate elite in all sorts of interesting tax cuts which have been given over the last four years. The record is utterly clear. There are no benefit increases for the poor. And you know, we, we talk about the social welfare budget being unaffordable, for example, at 200 billion. No one talks about the 92 billion which is given to big business in grants and subsidies and tax breaks. 
Seven top banks in the city of London have paid no tax at all over the last few years. Professor Simon Ren-Lewis is, a, is a, a leading UK macroeconomist and works out of Merton College, Oxford. And this is about as close as you can come if you're an Oxford don, don to accusing the government or the Prime Minister or the Chancellor of being a blatant liar. Um, quote, the line that the Labour government was responsible for leaving a disastrous fiscal position which requires great national sacrifice to put right is pure spin. It's lies. It's completely not true. In fact, the public finances were left in a mess after 2009 because of the quantitative easing, without being too technical, needed to bail out the banks because of their reckless lending on things like derivatives and collateralized debt swaps and all sorts of other bonkers things like subprime mortgages. Um, but what's interesting, if you look at the last bullet from one, there are 3,700 DWP staff chasing benefit fraud of 1.3 billion, which works out at 350,000 each. But there are um, 700 HMRC staff chasing 34 billion tax avoidance by the most wealthy. In other words, 48 million each. So one group of people is chasing 138 times more money than the other. In other words, the state bears down 138 times more heavily on the poorest members of our society than on the richest members of our society. If ever you wanted a mathematical rendering of injustice, there you have it. And this makes me angry, so I'm sorry about that. But I'd like to give you some aspiring chain breakers. This is Tess, whoops, what have I done? Never mind. Okay, yeah, that's right. That's 42-year-old Tess Asplund. Two weeks ago, she was confronting a far-right demo in um, Gothenburg in Sweden um, and felt it was right to stand up. Uh, it's a brave thing to do. It wasn't premeditated, she was there, she saw the demo. She thought, I'm not having it. This is Clive Stafford-Smith, who chairs the legal group Reprieve. He's responsible for getting people like Shekharama out of Guantanamo and exposing the utterly appalling torture which has gone on in Guantanamo. And if I had more time, I'd go into some detail about that. I think that look on his face says it, even if he is appearing on Russian television. This is Mama Rebecca Masika Katsuva, um, who was the victim of uh, multiple rapes in eastern Congo um, uh, by the, as a result of the war that was going on there. Uh, she set up a network of uh, safe houses for women to uh, recover from the incidents of rape used as a weapon of war, places where they could grow their own food, achieve some degree of uh, self-sufficiency, um, even then, uh, those places were attacked by militia. Her own mother was raped and killed, um, and yet she went back doing it again and again. She adopted 18 children uh, that were the result of uh, incidences of rape. She sadly died earlier this year in February at the age of 49. This is the Migrant Offshore Aid Station, which is the um, uh, brainchild of the former head of Maltese intelligence called Martin Zereb. And um, he was so appalled at what he saw going on in the Mediterranean that he sold everything he had and bought a boat, and that's it. Um, they have saved, uh, he's now got three boats, um, staffed purely by volunteers, chefs from hotels coming along and cooking rice and tomatoes for everyone they can find. They've saved the lives of over 13,500 people. The British government, and with all its naval presence in the Mediterranean, saved the lives of about 5,000. 
People like this put us to shame. It's totally voluntarily financed. Check out MOAS. I think these are inspiring people. This is the Reverend Ken Leach. He died again, sadly, earlier this year. He set up the charity center point because he was incensed by the tower block lying, lying empty in central London when people were sleeping on the streets. He lived out of a little loft apartment with the Bengali community in the East End. This is Dennis McWege, um, who is a doctor, again operating in Congo, whose nickname was the man who repairs women. Um, and uh, he ran a practice, he was threatened with death many times, uh, ran a practice uh, providing surgery and medical support for women, particularly who were the victims of some of the atrocities of war. People doing what they can, where they are, with what they've got. This is Rajendra Singh. Um, he's, made, he's introduced um, uh, a river dam, a traditional Indian river dam arrangement which has brought water to over a thousand villages in, in drought-stricken parts of India. And in order, his point is that um, human rights are about having access to water. Water will be the cause of World War III. Um, as a result, he's walked across five continents to bring the need of that situation to the attention of the UN. This is Tom Shannon. Tom Shannon was sentenced to um, uh, life imprisonment for murder in 1985 because he got into a fight when he was drunk with his best friend. Unfortunately, he killed his best friend. Um, so he confessed to his crime. Nonetheless, he was, um, he was banged up. He kept getting into fights with prison staff. He's actually five foot three, he weighs six stone, and he's now 77. So he served 30 years in prison. He got into a letter-writing relationship with this guy while he was in prison. Uh, the guy in question published all his letters. The money for that pays for a prison literacy scheme that now services the needs of 50,000 people in British prisons. He didn't know that until about three months ago. This is Claire McGregor, who provides life coaching to people in style prison in, in Manchester. Again, you know, life coach, working with executives in business, gives up her time, changes career. She's published a wonderful book called uh, Coaching Behind Bars. This is Brian Hoare, who you, you may remember seeing outside the House of Commons, saying, you know, it's, killing people is wrong. So how about us? What are some of the chains that I can get involved in breaking? Whether it's just providing money to homeless people, um, how can I deepen my awareness of the scale of injustice um, of the world that we live in? What can I do where I am, with what I have at present? How can I build my capacity to do more this time next year or in five years' time? You know, we all, we're all busy, but we all do what we want to do. What might be an action or a campaign group I can get involved in which will make a targeted and focused difference, such as Amnesty or CART, Campaign Against the Arms Trade, or Christian Aid or UNICEF or the Disability News Service? or the hundred or so that are listed in my book. How do I feel God might be prompting me in the light of what I've seen and heard today? What might be something specific? You know, in, there's a Chinese proverb, what I hear I forget, what I see I remember, what do I learn? What can we do that will help us to learn and make a difference to the world that we live in? We're all flawed, we're all fallen. I'm not trying to be holier than thou in all this, and forgive me if I'm coming across that way. But finally, this is the slogan that was used when Peter Benenson set up Amnesty in 1961. It's a quote from a Wesleyan minister, actually, from 1907, William Lonsdale Watkinson. It's better to light a candle than to cast the darkness. Thank you very much.